Welcome back to another episode of Victim Meet Advocate. The whirlwind of the holidays is slowly winding down, and we're glad to announce that Victim Witness is fully staffed again as we welcome our new advocate, Allison, to the team. Today we will be discussing a topic that is especially prevalent in the Hampton Roads area, human trafficking. So human trafficking is crime that's been at the forefront of issues and history as a whole. Oftentimes when we hear the word human trafficking, certain images come to mind. The, move, the new movie Sound of Freedom is a hot topic right now and takes on what we would perceive as a more traditional role of human trafficking. However, human trafficking can look a lot of different ways. Human trafficking can be sex trafficking, what we usually think of, and forced labor trafficking, people from other countries that are brought here to work under duress. So according to the organization Exodus Road, human trafficking is often referred to as the modern day slavery. The United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime defines human trafficking as an act of gathering, moving, receiving, or keeping human beings by threat, force, coercion, or deception for exploitative purposes. Even though slavery has been abolished in the United States, this phenomenon still occurs every single day here. If you'd like a full rundown of how human trafficking has evolved through, throughout time, check out the link in the description for the Exodus Road Foundation. So I'm sure you all are wondering, how does this relate to Virginia? The National Human Trafficking Hotline serves all 50 states, and since 2007, Virginia was host to 6,398 signals to their hotline. In this case, signals encompass calls, text, online chats, and tips. So of those 6,398, the hotline was bailed to identify over 1,500 cases of human trafficking. Since 2007, there have been 3,573 identifications of victims. Now, these two statistics may confuse you, but it's actually the very nature of human trafficking that influences them. Human trafficking is often a faceless crime in the fact that it is incredibly hard to identify someone based on what little information they may have about themselves or that their family is providing about them if they are included in the process. A good portion of the time, officials are able to identify that human trafficking is occurring but unable to establish who the victim is. Virginia boasts scenic coastlines as one of the main tourist drives. The Northern Neck and Middle Peninsula are both noted for their access to waterways and beautiful nature. Unfortunately, this is a double-edged sword. Access to waterways can allow traffickers the ability to transport individuals with less chance of being apprehended. It is also important to note that these traffickers are not what Hollywood has suggested they are in movies like Rambo and The Sound of Freedom. They are average, everyday people who look and act the same way we do and even can be very important members of a community. So let's jump into a case study that is actually hits close to home for the Tri-County area. In April and May of 2019, 54-year-old Jennifer Hutchins of Gloucester County conspired to produce sexually explicit photos of two teenagers with William Hooper of Matthews. One of the teenagers was Jennifer Hutchins' own daughter. When the story broke, it rocked the small town of Matthews as always boasted the sediment that would never happen around here. This case was immediately labeled by the media as a case of human trafficking. It also shifted the mythical narrative that traffickers are strangers. It is also important to note that Mr. Hooper owned a yacht and had access to multiple bodies of water that he would often traverse. William Hooper was also considered well-established in the community as he was associated with Williams Wharf Oyster Company. If you are from any small town like Matthews County, I'm sure you are well aware of the Big Fish Little Pond Syndrome that can often accompany those who are well-known in tiny communities. And so, real quick, I actually grew up in Matthews, so when this case broke, it was, um, I, I kind of got to watch it unfold on the local talk pages, and it was kind of surreal to see how um, crimes like this, when they're brought to light, affect the people that are 
um, you know, learning about them because a lot of times, like we mentioned earlier, it's the idea that this doesn't happen around here and a lot of people kind of turn a blind eye to it. And so being able to watch the way um, that people who were in avid support of him were coming to his defense and being able to watch the way that people were in avid support of the victims, it was very interesting to see how those play out, especially in small towns like Gloucester and Matthews where everybody knows everybody and, you know, a lot of people, they, they just can't grasp that these things are happening and that they're happening so close to home. And so this case ended up going to a jury trial in May of 2020. And for us advocates and anyone listening who works in the criminal justice system, this gap of time seems about average for a case as intense as this one. To take a brief pause on the case study, this can also become an issue when we are trying to support and encourage victims to participate in prosecution. Long wait times in criminal matters can leave victims feeling powerless and frustrated, especially when those times are often caused by the defendant with whom it can feel like the system is siding with. And this can also happen continuously, you know, when we get, you know, continuances, when we get motions and we have to call the victim, we have to tell them, hey, it's being pushed back again and again. And they can feel, well, you know, what's the point of this if this keeps getting pushed back? And it's something to note, especially for human trafficking victims, this can already be just another contributing factor to their being isolated. And without the proper support of family members and loved ones and community support, they can disengage from this process entirely. And then that can cause some real issues for us when we're trying to present a case. So diving back into this particular case study, William Hooper was found guilty of conspiracy to produce child pornography, production of child pornography, and coercion and enticement of a child. It was also later revealed at trial that Mr. Hooper knew that the victim's family were struggling financially along with his co-conspirator and had promised them money in exchange for what he described as teen modeling. As for Jennifer Hutchins, she has pled guilty the previous October to producing child pornography and was sentenced to 23 years in prison. We are uncertain if Jennifer Hutchins was called as a witness in the jury trial to testify against Mr. Hooper. So this case actually ended up going to the Court of Appeals, and that's something that sometimes we really don't find out about. You know, we had the whirlwind of when it first broke in the news. We had the whirlwind when the trial began, and then it kind of just tapered off, and we moved on to the next spectacle. And so when I was searching for this, it was like, I wonder if this went to the Court of Appeals, and it did. So at the United States Court of Appeals, Mr. Hooper alleged multiple challenges relating to his conviction, such as a denial of the defense's motion to suppress evidence found on a cell phone. And for everybody who doesn't work in our job every day, that pretty much means that Mr. Hooper did not want the jury to hear about what was discovered on the two cell phones in his possession at the time of the crime, as well as at the time of arrest. Another assertion was one that he was claiming on a technicality, saying the jury had the ability to convict him of the same crime twice. And I always thought that that was a little interesting, too, that, you know, we were just kind of going through the motions of all these assertions and listening, well, not really listening, but reading the kind of his reasoning behind that I thought was really interesting. And um, all of the assertions he had made on this appeal were shot down, and the Court of Appeals upheld his sentence that he was given by the Matthews County Circuit Court. Hooper was given life in prison, though he felt it was vastly disproportionate to the sentence that Jennifer Hudgens received. And for anybody listening who may feel um, that that might be vastly disproportionate, a lot of times we do plea deals and we offer those things um, in order to say, say they had had Jennifer Hutchins testify against him in there that would say, hey, if you help us, we'll help you. So that's something that can happen a lot in the criminal mm -hmm. justice system, and a lot of times our victims may not understand that, especially, you know, when they may feel that we want, you know, both people to be held accountable, and they may not feel that they're being appropriately held accountable. Um, and if you would like to read further about this case, we've linked the appeal information from justiauslaw.com in the description box, and it's a very interesting read. 
And I would be remiss not to shout out our partners at the Attorney General's office who would notify victims at this point of all these appeals going on. Um, so now that we've covered our case study that hits so close to home, let's talk about some of the signs of human trafficking and ways you can help if you suspect someone may be in a situation that is unsafe for them. First, it's important to identify who is vulnerable to human trafficking. Some of these people can be people with unstable living conditions, people who are addicted to drugs, children who have been involved in the juvenile justice system, and undocumented immigrants. It is also important to note that human trafficking does not discriminate on age, gender, or race. Often those factors intersect with the reasons above to create a situation where someone can be trafficked. So some signs you can look for when considering if someone may be labor trafficked are feeling pressured to remain at their job when they actively want to leave. Um, another thing is if their employer is having access or possession of important documents like birth certificates, passports, immigration documents. Um, someone who's living and working in very isolated conditions, so say they're living with their employer or they're living you know, near their employer or their employer is even controlling where they go and they can't go home at night to their family, that might be something you might want to think about because they're severing them from that support system. And also someone who might be being threatened with deportation or harm from their employer. Another thing to consider is how are they being paid? So payments aren't scheduled, so like they're not happening like say every two weeks or every week. And if they're done in cash or you know they're not documented, it could be that the employer isn't documenting the payments and thus not reporting the payments to the appropriate authorities for that. And then in sex trafficking, some telltale signs are if the person is participating in sex work who does not want to or feels that they cannot leave the situation or if someone is describing instances of sexual contact that are worrisome regardless of how their reaction is. And I noted this because we see this a lot of times in sex trafficking. These people who are victims of trafficking are convinced that this is their choice. And they'll say to you, well, you know, I can leave it anytime I want. It's fine. You know, I, I like this, especially when we see this new kind of shift on social media of how sex work is perceived. <laughs> it could be perceived as this um, empowering aspect, but it can also be a way of manipulation that people who are in control are using to try to convince them not to want to leave. Um, another thing is if someone has a guardian or a significant other that is incredibly controlling or monitors who they speak to while also facilitating work of some kind, or if they live where they work and they don't feel as if they have a safe place to relax, it's definitely important you know, for anybody who's working to have work and then the time when you can disengage from work. So when somebody doesn't have that and they can't go home and they can't disengage from work, that may be a sign that something more sinister is going on. And then um, another thing to note is that all of these signs can also intersect with domestic violence and we can find that human trafficking and domestic violence are quite interwoven when it comes to these issues. Absolutely. So what do you do if you think someone is a victim of trafficking? One of the most important things is your safety and the safety of those around you. If there's an active emergency, call 911. If you just feel like something is off, call your local non-emergency number and make a report with your local law enforcement. If the person is getting into a car, try to remember that license plate. Um, and then it also may be important to know that turning on your camera and recording but keeping it in your lap while you read out a license plate is a great way to like not raise suspicion but also keep you know the information somewhere safe that you have a copy of. You can also contact the human trafficking hotline at 1-888-373-7888. You can also as well contact your social your local social services. They've been trained on how to assist people, especially if it's a child um, involved, and they'll be able to investigate and assist and report that to law enforcement for you. So this episode was a heavy one. We're breaching a topic that does not have a solution that we can lay out and easily point to and say that's going to fix all of these issues. 
one of the most important things I think we found is to be educated on the signs and the prevalence of the issue, to recognize that this stuff does happen around you and it happens at a higher rate than most people would expect. So many success stories that we see on the news and that we see circulating on social media rely on good people noticing something and trusting their guts when they think something is wrong. It relies on those same people, people like you and me, everyday people, to reach out and alert the proper authorities to handle the situation. And if you know someone or you yourself are struggling, please reach out. Know that none of this is your fault and there are people here who are ready to help you. You just have to take that step and say that you'd like help. So we hope that you found this episode both interesting and informative. We have some great episodes planned out for the next few months and have even gotten the theme for this year's National Crime Victims Rights Week that we will be unveiling soon. Be sure you are following us on all of our social media platforms that are linked in the description box to stay up to date on all the latest information, episodes, and events that we'll be hosting. Until next time, this has been Victim Meet Advocate.